Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. So we're ready for John chapter 13, and this will be part two of 13. We, we started it last week a little bit, um, and I want to uh, just kind of pick up where we left off. We, we talked about the first, uh, oh, the first 11, we really talked a little bit about the first 17 verses. Uh, the significance of the washing of the feet is kind of where we left off. This idea that John brings to life something that the other Gospels don't, that, that show us the incredible uh, importance of Christ's humility. I mean, here he is, God made flesh, King of kings, Lord of lords. And in the midst of their squabbling about who's the most important and where they're going to sit and things like that, Jesus stops the supper and washes their feet. What an incredible picture that is. We never want to lose the importance of that picture. Um, there was a, uh, a quotation that I wanted to give you that kind of summarizes that, uh, the, the importance of humility so well, if I can find it here. It's by the, the uh, biblical commentator, um, William Barclay, great biblical commentator of the last century, had quoted a passage, he quoted a passage from a, uh, it's from a book written, I'm going to find it here for you, I have it in my notes, right here, um, I think it was called the, was it called the Great Captain, page 90, let's see on Barclay, page 171, there we go, that's a different one. Now maybe I can't find it for you, I wanted to read it to you so badly. You know how it is when you're in a hurry, you're trying to find something. And I'm just going to read it straight out of his book here. Um, yes, here it is. It was a book called The Beloved Captain by an author named Donald Henke. And there is this passage in which he describes this idea of greatness mixed with humility, the power of humility. So I want you to hear this from this classic uh, author. The beloved captain. These are some of the captain's men talking about him. We all knew how instinctively that he was our superior. A man of inner fiber, a man of finer fiber than ourselves. A toff in his own right. I suppose that he that was why he could be so humble without loss of dignity. For he was humble, too, if that is the right word, and I think it is. No trouble of ours was too small for him to attend to. When we started root marches, for instance, and our feet were blistered and sore, as they often were at first, you would have thought that they were his own feet from the trouble he took. Of course, after the march, there was always an inspection of feet. That is the routine. But with him, it was no more mere routine. He came into our room, and if anyone had a sore foot, he would kneel down on the floor and look at it as carefully as if he had been a doctor. 
And then he would prescribe, and the remedies were ready at hand, being borne by a sergeant. If a blister had to be lanced, he would very likely lance it himself there and then, so as to make sure it was done with a clean needle that no dirt was allowed to get in. There was no affectation about this, no striving after effect. It was simply that he felt that our feet were pretty important and that he knew that we were pretty careless. So he thought it best at the start to see to the matter himself. Nevertheless, there was in our eyes something almost religious about this care for our feet. It seemed to have a touch of the Christ about it. And we loved and honored him the more. The strange thing is that it is the man who stoops like that, like Christ, whom men in the end honor as a king, and the memory of whom they will not willingly let die. End quote. Beautiful passage. I've never read that book, but I was stunned by that passage and how beautifully it speaks of this idea of the humility of Christ. And and that's really the humility that we're all called to have. Humility is really the beginning place of our faith. To be like Christ is to be humble. Okay? Not to be all-powerful. But in that humility, Christ is all-powerful, and any power that we have must come through our humility. That's that's often lost in our society. That's very, very often lost in our society. Very often, uh, I think he even went on to make a point that was good. I don't don't know if I underlined it or not, but uh, he went on to make the point of uh, the the writer here, Barclay, did that Quite often, even in in churches, in organizations, in governments, uh, people begin to rise in power and a position, and they quickly feel they are below certain things. And when that happens, you've lost it. You've lost the humility. None of us is below anything. Do you realize that? None of us is below anything. And, uh, you know, we don't, we do not uh, live, we, we're, as Americans, we've not lived with the idea in our culture of royalty, okay? In, in cultures with royalty, like England or somebody like that, there's certain things that royalty would never do. But yet Christ, the most royal of all, proved there's nothing that he wouldn't do for the love of us. For the love of his disciples. So that, that's where we were, and that's where we were leaving off. Um, so if we look, uh, I think we, did we read, did we go ahead and read all the way through the verse 17? I can't remember if I did. I think I did. Well, let me read 12 through 17, which kind of speaks to what I was just saying. Verse 12 says this, And when he had washed their feet and taken his garments... And resumed his place. He said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus is calling us there in that passage. He's explaining to them. I'm sure they're just, at this point, they're in shock. They're in awe. They can't quite believe The master has stopped and washed each one of our feet. And he had that conversation with Peter. Peter didn't want him to. And he had that conversation with Peter that you're already clean, but you still need to have your feet washed because this is a part of the ongoing process of humanity. Our feet constantly get dirty. You know, it's part of being human. And that that was the analogy. That was the metaphor then. And it's not so much that our feet are always dirty like theirs. We live in a culture with shoes and socks. But our humanity is constantly in danger of getting dirty and always in need of cleansing. Even though we're already clean, we're believers. Okay, So never be above that sort of thing. Now, he goes on. We want to look at a passage from verse 18 today in part 2 of 13. We want to look at a passage that flows from verse 18 all the way through um, verse 30. But that's a long passage, and we'll break it down. I'm going to go ahead and read that as one part of the story. This is a very difficult chapter to cut into sections because the story just flows. So I'm going to read that rather lengthy passage, but then we'll be breaking it down. So let's pick up the story in verse 18. And remembering that verse 17, he just had said... If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Talking to the room of his disciples now, around the table. So verse 18 says, I am not speaking of you all. I know whom I have chosen. It is that the scripture may be fulfilled. Quote, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me, end quote. I tell you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, You may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives anyone whom I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had thus spoken, he was troubled in spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was lying close to the breast of Jesus. And so Simon Peter beckoned to him and said, Tell us who it is of whom he speaks. So lying thus close to the breast of Jesus, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give this morsel when I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money box, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. And so after receiving the morsel, he immediately went out. And it was night. That's verse 30. Let's stop there. Um, Would you, if you have your prayer cards, would you take them out and let's just pray 
that the Lord will open our hearts and our understandings. Does anyone need one of these prayer cards? Does anybody have them? Need one? Okay. Keep extras on. I keep extras on hand just so you can keep them. Anybody else? Here? Let's pray as we receive the word of the Lord this morning. Let us pray. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise together with our Father, who is from everlasting, and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you. Uh, Jesus begins this section um, by quoting scripture. Well, John, I guess, begins with the words of Jesus, as I should more appropriately say John begins, with the words of Jesus here as quoting scripture about this idea of, uh, I know whom I've chosen, and it is that scripture, that scripture may be fulfilled. He's We're setting up the story now that one among them is going to betray Jesus. And Jesus knows this because, of course, he's God. And Jesus is making a point here that it's a fulfillment of Scripture. What is he he speaking about? Well, in Psalm 41, and I'll go ahead and read that to you here. It's in Psalm 41.9 is actually what John is quoting here. I love the fact, this, this fact is not lost on me, and I hope it isn't on you. That, uh, that these writers like John and Peter and, and Paul and all these apostles, they, they quote scripture like, I mean, they just know it, you know? And they don't always get it word perfect because, the, you know, who does? But, um, but they know it, you know? Especially the Psalms. They're quoted so often, the Psalms and Isaiah and some of the prophets by these New Testament writers. And, you know, they didn't have their Bibles laying on their tables at home by their bedside and on their coffee tables. You know, the the Bible was a scroll in the synagogue. Okay, it wasn't sitting by every nightstand, and, and, and they didn't, you know. But these were—they went to synagogue and they studied scripture and they memorized scripture and they just knew it. They knew the word of God. They'd hidden it in their hearts. So it amazes me whenever I see them. You know, if we're—if I'm getting ready to write a book or I'm getting ready to write a sermon or something, I'm, you know, put all these Bibles in front of me and open my computer and, you know, I want to quote scripture. I got to go look it up. Uh, To them, they they couldn't just look it up. It wasn't sitting beside them in a scroll. You know, they they knew it. And we know that right here, John is quoting Psalm 41. And 41.9 says, verse 9 says this, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. There's the quotation. Scripture says, Jesus says, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So that's Jesus quoting Scripture, but John's quoting Jesus is is what I meant to say a minute ago. Um, What does that Scripture mean to us? 
Why is it important that uh, we understand that he whom uh, ate my bread has lifted his heel against me? And the psalmist says that even my close friend in whom I've trusted, who ate my bread, lifted his heel against me. What's so important about eating bread? Do we know anything about that? It was very hospitable in those days to be asked in to eat, share bread with one another. Right. That meant you were my friend if you came to eat bread with me. Exactly. That was the ultimate sign of friendship was to eat with one another. And bread was the staple of life. I mean, bread at every meal. Um, Got to love that. Uh, we think of bread as a no-no today because it's so many calories and carbohydrates. And, but bread was the source of, of, of every meal, the staple of every meal. And uh, you didn't eat with people. In the Eastern mind, you didn't eat with people who were not your friends. You didn't eat with your enemies. But to sit at table and eat together, that was the sign of true friendship, true acceptance, true love. That's a little bit lost in our culture today. Uh, we, don't, we don't understand that, even though it's a beautiful thing. We should do well to recover it, okay? Um, it's a sign of beautiful friendship. And Jesus is saying... That, that he knows, in this passage, he knows that Judas is about to betray him. But we want, what we're going to uncover this morning in, in our verses, and I don't know how many we'll get through, is we're going to uncover what is this dialogue between Jesus and Judas? What is Jesus trying to do here? We must never believe that this is simply a passage that's quoted or inserted just to fulfill Scripture. Okay, J- Jesus isn't doing this just so that we can fulfill the scripture of some little verse back in the book of Psalms. He's doing it for a purpose, to show something extremely important. Now, let me read to you something that was written by uh, one of the great bishops of the early church. His name was Cyril, Cyril of Alexandria. He was the bishop of (coughs) Alexandria. Uh, He was actually the patriarch, which is the head bishop of all bishops in Alexandria. Now, Alexandria is where? Do we know where Alex? Egypt, that's correct. So, And it was one of the main centers of, of biblical thought and study. The universities there, the school of Alexandria. Some great thinkers came from Alexandria. And the Egypt church was really, really prominent in those days. And he, he was patriarch of Alexandria in the early 400s. Okay, so early, very early 5th century. He was patriarch uh, at the time of the Great Council of Ephesus, okay, the Great Council of Ephesus, which was the council that uh, deposed the the Patriarch of Constantinople, whose name was Nestorius. The big controversy of Nestorianism uh, that had to do with the divinity and the humanity of Jesus, and we don't have time for that history lesson, but it's a fascinating one. Look it up. But uh, this this is what I, this is what Cyril said. Let no one suppose, as do some ignorant people, that the oracles delivered by the holy prophets are carried onward to final accomplishment simply in order that the scriptures may be fulfilled. Who could ever be so utterly void of proper reason as to suppose that the word, and that's a capital W, the word of the Holy Spirit, meaning Christ, that the word of the Holy Spirit should become to any a patron of sin. 
Therefore, we do not believe that the deeds of any were done simply so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But the Holy Spirit has spoken in perfect foreknowledge as to what will happen, so that when the event comes to pass, we may find in the prediction a pledge to establish our faith, that we may from that point on hold our faith without hesitation. What is Cyril saying here? He's saying, let it not be, This is the, we're going to take that apart for a minute, let it not be that we think that these prophets, and by this he's, we're specifically in our passage thinking of, and this was Cyril's comments on this scripture, we're specifically thinking of the psalm, Psalm 41. Let us not think that this is simply a, a conduit to sin. He said that the scripture may not be a, a patron of sin. What does he mean by that? Because what did Jesus do? This, this friend of his, we know it's Judas, eats bread with him and ends up betraying him. Okay. In fact, Scripture even says, we just read it, that when he ate that bread, it said then Satan entered into him. We want to understand that Jesus is not passing along to Judas any sin. Okay. He's not affirming his sin. He's not passing it to him. It's not that this was written down, so it's got to be fulfilled. Okay, There is always in the heart of every human the agency of free will, freedom of the will to either yield to temptation or to resist temptation. Now, so what do we see in this, Jesus? Why does Jesus quote this in such a way? He says, I tell you this, verse 19, Jesus says, I tell you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you will believe that I am he. Now, that night at the meal, after it takes place, they didn't automatically go, oh, wow. (laughs) They understood these things as the Holy Spirit was given to them later. Okay, And they do believe that I am he. So it's just another uh, affirmation, if you will, that Jesus is the Christ. He really is who he said he was. And after he's raised and gone back to heaven and given the Holy Spirit to them, they are even more firm and more convinced Jesus truly was who he said he was. And then they begin to understand what this passage is about today is is helping us to understand the relationship between Jesus and Judas. And this is a very important uh, thing for us to take some time on. Because the relationship that Jesus had with Judas... If we don't understand that, we miss the relationship that we all have with Jesus and our own relationship with this idea of temptation and what Satan is trying to do in our world and with our lives. Okay, So we're going to take just a few minutes to to break this apart. As we look at this, when Jesus comments on this, you notice he, he, he says... It's going to be somebody that's eaten with me. It's going to be a friend, in other words. And Judas is that. He's one of the twelve, one of the chosen, if you will. He says that it's it, it, it's uh, it's so that you may believe, and someday you will. And then he says in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you that anyone who receives, uh, who receives anyone whom I send receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me. It's very important. Jesus has kind of said this before, and he'll say it again, that to receive Jesus is to receive the Father. 
Okay, to receive the disciples or the apostles in this case that he's going to send. The word apostle means those who are sent. Then to receive them is to receive Jesus. Okay, so we are directly, we are always and forever going to be tied to Jesus, to the Father by who we receive. Okay, and who we don't receive, and who's coming in His name and who's not coming in His name. Judas is about to be. Uh, is about to receive Jesus. And he's about to do something horrible with that reception. And then others are going to go receive him. And they, in turn, are doing something horrible with Jesus in that reception. This is a little deep, but follow with me here. Okay, so when Jesus had thus spoken, verse 21, it says, when he had thus spoken, he was troubled in spirit. We've learned about this word troubled. In chapter 11, when Jesus, it said he was troubled in spirit when he stood outside Lazarus' tomb. Remember that? Chapter 11, he saw the weeping and the, the heartache of, of Mary and, 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 and Martha and how troubled he was in his spirit. And we learned that that's not the same word. There are a couple of words that when it said he was uh, troubled in the past, there's been a word that talked about more of an a righteous indignation, anger. But this is that trouble of the spirit that's very human, that's very emotional, that's very grieved. And it's that Greek word terasso. It's a form of, of, of that verb, terasso. Jesus is emotionally moved and troubled by the knowledge that what he's about to do with Judas is going to end in Judas' condemnation. And that that hurts. That that hurts bitterly. Uh, and so he says he's troubled deep in his spirit. And, and, and he testifies these words. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. So he's pouring out the reality of what's about to happen. And then it says the disciples then looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. You know, they're, they're looking at, can you imagine? They're, they're sitting there. There's this poignant time. They've just had their feet washed. They've, they've been humbled by Jesus' humility. It's teaching. They're, they're there to celebrate this beautiful Passover. This is the high point of their faith, if you will, one of the highest, holiest days of their faith. And and they see Jesus saying, one of you will betray me. I mean, oh God, they're perplexed. I mean, that would be a pretty perplexing thing. Um, and, and so in verse 23, that second section that, that we carry on here, uh, Something amazing happens. It says, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was lying close to the breast of Jesus. Something interesting is happening here. John is inserting himself into the story of his own gospel as kind of a narrator, if you will. Okay, He doesn't use himself by name. And he uses, the, the title he gives himself is, one whom Jesus loved. Is that to say that Jesus didn't love the others? Of course not. But but let's go back to the the, the picture of the, the banquet here. We're gonna we're gonna draw some notes here on the, or pictures on the board as best I can. I want you to see the banquet room, the upper room where they're at. The table tables are usually done in this U shape, and the get and the host sits right here. And we know from the study of times and, and culture and everything that at any banquet, the host always sat in the middle of this long table and 
the important most important guess set on the left and the right the left and the right okay and we remembered how that was the argument from James and John and even their mother got into it at one point with Jesus you know, would you let my son sit on the left and the right you know they knew that was when you come into your kingdom this is the important place well and we see that even in kingdoms, real kingdoms. If you look at where the throne is and who's sitting on the left and right, you know, there's some very important positions there. Um, we know from history that the most important seat, the number one seat, is which? It's the left. In the culture of humanity, it's the left, okay? And let me tell you why. In the culture of the left... They, they, ne- they didn't sit at table like you are today, right here in this classroom. They, they sat on pillows, they leaned back on their left arm, and they ate with their right hand. Okay? So the, the, uh, the head, if you will, of the person leaning is always to the person on their left. You with me? Okay? So as they're leaning over, because most people are right-handed, and that's just they, that, the culture always ate with their right hand. That was just, it's, it's a cult, it's, an, it, it's still that way in, in the very traditional parts of the East, whether that's uh, the Semitic peoples, whether that's Jewish, whether that's Arabic or whatever. They eat with their right hand, even in Northern Africa, they eat with their right hand. Um, and in that, the person sitting on the right then is actually leaning on their left, and they would be, his head would be, in the place of the almost to the breast of the other person, right? So we know that John must be sitting on the right because he's right there next to Jesus. It says, lying close to the breast of Jesus. That's what that means. And Peter, we don't know where Peter, we don't know where anyone else is sitting, okay? It does not tell us that, that doesn't tell us who's on the left, but we know that this is we know that this has got to be John. And Peter, somewhere, he's probably close by. He always wanted to be the leader, and, and he was a good leader. Peter, Peter says to John, uh, since he's, got, he's right in Jesus' uh, right ear, he says, uh, why don't you ask him who he's talking about? Who's going to betray him? Because they're, they're puzzled. And so, John, it says here, uh, so lying close, John asks, Lord, who is it? Lord, who is it? And Jesus answers him. It is he to whom I shall give this morsel when I have dipped it. Now, the meal that they're having, the Passover meal, they use a lot of bread in that meal, and it was very common to dip the morsel to the, to the cup. Kind of like we do with our communion sometimes. We, we receive communion through intinction when we come to the table of the Lord, a lot of, by taking a piece of the bread and dipping it into the cup. So he's going to dip it. Um, and in this, in this process, John is, is, is inserting himself. We're seeing this close relationship between John and Jesus, whispering into Jesus here, and Jesus answering him. It's the one to whom I'm going to. Now, we're all logical people, and we're all reading this dispassionately from 2,000 years later, and we're thinking, aha, everybody should be able to figure this out. You know, it's clear. Just watch the bread. Follow the bread. Whoever he dips the bread and gives it to. Okay. But it's not so easy to figure out as we continue to follow the story, is it? Look look back at the word here with us. So in verse, the last half of verse 26, 
Jesus says, so, so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas. And, and then he, he said, and this is another quote from Jesus, what you're going to do, do quickly. Judas, you're putting the dots together here. Judas must have been close. And everybody didn't hear it. And everybody didn't hear it necessarily. Okay? But John certainly did because John's pretty close too. Okay? What, it, it, I, again, the text does not tell us for a fact that Judas is sitting on the left. But let's try and go deep here. Jesus loved Judas. Because Jesus loves everyone, and Jesus loves you and I. And Jesus knows that Judas, before they even prepare the room, Jesus is knowing what's coming. He's looking at the cross in his spirit. He knows everything that's going to happen. And you can bet, I think, that Jesus wanted Judas close. Because he knows, I want to give him every chance. I I don't want Judas to do this. I know he will. I know it's a little hard for us to fathom this, the mind of God who knows all, but yet is also the mind of a human who thinks, you know, Jesus is that split. That's where the importance of our theology is so important. Jesus is all human, but he's also all divine. Okay, he's the God-man. And, and in his humanity, he does not want Judas to follow through with this. He knows what Judas is being tempted by. He's known Judas all along. He picked Judas to be one of the 12, didn't he? Did he just dispassionately pick him because that fulfills and checks off the scripture? No. No, 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 no. That's what Cyril of Alexandria was saying. As some ignorant people have assumed, let's don't look at scripture that way. We can't look at scripture so dispassionately from looking back into it from the, and say, oh, that was just to check this off and that was just to fulfill that. No, we're entering into the story of God and the story of Man, as they interact in real emotion and real events. And, and Judas, you know, who was Judas? Well, he was the treasurer. I mean, my goodness, Jesus knew in his heart was tempted and greed, had greed was a problem for Judas. And Jesus made him the treasurer. You and I wouldn't do that, would we? We're not going to put somebody in the position with the purse if we know they have a temptation to steal it. We're going to think a little differently about that. But, but Jesus wanted to, Jesus is always constantly trying to reach out to Judas. By giving him the power of the purse, what was Jesus saying to Judas? I trust you. Do the, it's, it maybe, maybe without saying it, saying, do the right thing, Judas. I trust you. Okay. If he hadn't given Judas that power, Judas might have always been a little, well, he doesn't trust me anyway. At every turn, Jesus was always trying to reach Judas because our faith tells us that we have this understanding of free will. Who is this man, Judas? The one who, as Scripture calls us, we'll read a little later in John, uh, and I think it's in John 17, where he says, none of them were lost, Father, except the one, the son of perdition. Okay, the son who was... was, was, uh, lost. We're, we're going to, we need to stop here. We have to stop here and we have to talk about this idea of free will and God's knowledge and God's providence or we will never understand this scripture 
then we will never understand our place in, in the life of God. Okay, so this is real important. You might have some big questions as we walk through this, and I want you to ask them if you do, okay? Who was Judas? Judas was a human just like you and me. He was a child of God, created by God, with all the same temptations everyone else does, whom Jesus entered into his life, called him, and trusted him, and gave him every opportunity that he gives to everyone else. Now, what, is, what do we mean by the fact that we say Jesus knew? That it says, we read it back here in the scripture with me. It is to whom I shall give this morsel when I have dipped it. And then, uh, so what you're going to do, do it quickly. Jesus is... is it's, it's as if he's giving Judas permission. But I think what he's doing is asking Judas, don't do it. I've put, you at the, I've put you at my left hand. I've put you at the most exalted place. I'm, I'm talking to you. I'm, I'm reaching out to you. Don't, I've already washed your feet. Don't, don't do it. Okay. So how do we understand? Let's take a few minutes and talk about this idea of of uh, understanding our freedom of the will and our creation by God. Uh, because there are some Christians who don't understand this and they teach wrongly, I believe. Uh, they teach mistakenly that Judas was foreordained to be the one who would be the betrayer. Okay, that he was for, and th- that word, I choose that word carefully, foreordained. Okay, but I don't believe in that and I don't believe that's true. Okay. I believe Judas was foreknown to be one who would be tempted and give into that temptation, ultimately follow through. And that's God's. That's according to God's plan. But what is God's plan built upon? We need to stop for a few minutes and think through this. What is God's plan built upon? God's plan. When I say God's plan, I mean His providential plan for the whole world. John three sixteen. Yeah, for God so loved the world that He gave his only son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's his providential plan. Whoever would, okay, we have an opportunity to either willingly receive God's plan or willingly reject God's plan. Every single human being ever born has that freedom. Why, can't, why do we say that? Because it's the only way that God can truly be love and holy. If God, we, we must, here's what we have to shake out of our hearts and minds. Too many Western Christians have grown up in, in the shadow of theology that teaches that God is this master planner. I know he's... He's God, so we got to respect him, and he's holy and all this, but he's just this master planner who knows what's best, and so he chose. And, and, and that's an arbitrary choice. There's theology out there that says that's just an arbitrary choice based on he just designed it that way. Well, there's nothing arbitrary about it. Because if you'll come back with me to my understanding of who God is outside of time and space, I've taught you this on more than one occasion, okay, this is where we live, okay? 
This is where we live. I don't know if these colors. This is where we live. This is our life. This is our world. This is history. This timeline, okay? This is where we live. But where does God live? Where is God? And where was where's the, the Holy Trinity? Outside of time and space. This is time and space right here. It's creation, okay? And all that's, and it's God from before time and space, before creation was ever invented, God looked out over all of time, and it says that he knew everyone that would ever choose him, receive him, love him, be saved, and he knew those that wouldn't. He knew everything that would ever happen. This is Romans chapter 8. For all those whom God foreknew, we use the, th- we, we use the word foreknew because it, it sounds like God knew it from before, but to God there is no such thing as time and space. He just exists. He's the eternal being. So him it's just knowledge. And before, so for us beforehand, he knew. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Okay? Didn't just decide, didn't just arbitrarily predestine, but did it based on knowledge that in our own human freedom created us. That's the ultimate, the ultimate, the ultimate definition of love is to be free. I can't truly love you. I can't truly love my wife unless I'm free to do it. Otherwise, it's forced. It's coerced. Human freedom is everything in this story between Jesus and Judas. Did Judas have the right to say no? Did he have the ability to say no? Yes. Yes, he did. Sadly, he chose otherwise. But before you go and say, oh, but he had to do that or the story wouldn't have worked out, you're discounting God's knowledge. No, God didn't pre-plan to fashion and create and have the world would give birth, some woman would give birth to this man named Judas and that he would be the ultimate evil that, that betrays his son. No, God didn't fashion it that way. It just happened that way according to the freedom of creation. God knew and he knows who will and who won't. He knows that about you and me right now. Okay? We are free. Free to love him, free to reject him. And there is never a point between our birth and our death that he takes that freedom away. Can't do it. It's one thing God will never do. He can't because that would violate his own being. Okay? That would not be loving. What does it say about a God who would create someone, allow someone like Judas to be born, and then only to fulfill Judas's quote, predestined or destiny. What does that say about that? How would you like to have been Judas? Not me. What does it say about a God who would do that to anyone? It's not pure loving. It's not pure holiness. It's not God. So this is so important. This is where the, the, the seeing God rightly when we read scripture, understanding who God really is, helps us to see his plan for the world. That's why all these people in our world today that are so, the number one reason why people will not believe in God and why people reject the concept of God is because they don't believe a loving God could do all of the, could allow all of these evil things to happen. 
Number one reason in every survey ever taken, number one reason why people reject Jesus Christ and the message of God in Christianity. Don't believe it. They just don't believe it could happen. There can't be a God to do all that. He wouldn't. If there was a loving God, if God was really there and God was really real and He was really love, He wouldn't allow all this evil. But how do you answer that? Because if you're trying to share your faith with someone who is of that mindset, you better know how to answer that. Have you thought through how you would answer that? Are you learning how to answer that? There's only one answer. I didn't know this stuff. I wasn't born with this knowledge. Believe me, it's taken me 50 years to figure all this out. 40 years of learning anyway. Uh, I really believe that's truth. We have that kind of freedom. God created us with that kind of freedom. And Judas was created free also. Go ahead. He opened himself up to Satan. Um, Our life is probably built on building blocks of choices we make. He had the love of money more than God, obviously, in the end. Yeah. And, uh, we, and so he opened him, he made himself a, prime, a right prime person for Satan to use. Yeah. And Satan knew where to attack him. Right. With money. Right. So this idea that he opened himself up to the temptation is very important for us because we all are living that same life. We will do things that will either open ourselves up to more temptation or we will choose a way of holiness. This is why holiness matters. This is important it's scary stuff. because he was right there with Jesus. I mean, can't get any close. Can't get any closer. Can't get any closer than he was, and he still. And 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 we when we look at this passage of scripture, we want to say, in verse twenty-eight, it says, "No one at the table knew why he said this to him." Probably the people down here may not have even heard it, but no, no, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. What, what did he say to him? He said, "What you're about to do, do quickly." So John, who's sitting close, hears this very well and remembers it very well and shares in his gospel here, in his memoirs and his thoughts, uh, the idea that they, they all discussed it. You can imagine the discussions they all had. Later, when they realize what Judas did, after the crucifixion, after Judas, it's word comes out that he goes out and, and, and takes his own life. Can you imagine what their discussions were? Why didn't we see this? We didn't see what was happening. Uh, why did Jesus trust him the way he trusted him? Why? You know, there's so many questions that I'm sure then as the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit helps them with all answers. Jesus promises that to them, and he promises that to us too if we'll, if we'll receive um, Some thought Judas had, because he had the money box, he said, some thought Jesus was telling him to just go get more stuff. Maybe they were about to run out of bread. Who knows? Um, Maybe it looked like it. After receiving the morsel, though, here's the most telling line. This is the most telling line of the passage. It's chilling is what it is. the most chilling line of the whole passage. Read it, read it with me. Look at verse 30. So after receiving the morsel, He immediately went out, and it was night. Wow. Immediately. Maybe the most chilling line is 27. Then after the morsel, those two go hand in hand. 
than after the morsel Satan entered into him. He was given fully over to Satan when he ate that bread. Now I want to draw a distinction in your mind. I, I don't think we can theologically say that this exact piece of bread was the exact piece of bread that Jesus lifted up and said, this is my body. I, I don't know that we can his, accurately rebuild the night because they ate a lot of bread and they blessed a lot of cups and they took a lot of bites. But we do know that at this supper, Jesus was instituting, if you will, the Holy Supper, the Eucharist, the Holy Communion, that Jesus did use bread and wine and he did give them a sacramental gift to say, do this in remembrance of me and as often as you do this, this is my body, this is my blood. And we do know that the earliest Christians began to reenact that every single Lord's Day. And we do know that over the last 2,000 years, it quickly became the highest, most sacred function of the Christian faith. The Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. And it's in that setting that this bread clearly does, is like a receiving of of Jesus. And, And now think about the words of the Apostle Paul. Later in the book of 1 Corinthians. I mean, I mean, let me take a moment to turn with you to 1 Corinthians. Let's go over there to chapter 11. 10 and 11. Because I think it's a good companion to what we're trying to learn here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And a little bit, a few verses out of 10 and a few verses out of 11. Um, And I'll find, give you just a minute to get there. Um, have a different Bible here, so it's not underlined, but right, I think it's first, we'll start at verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, this is the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I'm saying. The cup of blessing that we bless. What's he talking about? The the cup of blessing that we communions bless. What's he talking about? The cup of the the blood, the cup of the wine that we bless as the body and blood of Jesus. Okay, The cup of wine, in other words. This is their habit. This is what Christians do every time they worship. The cup that we bless... The cup of blessing we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? A participation, that's a powerful word there, okay? Pretty powerful word. And then he goes on to say, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Paul is teaching, he's reminding those Corinthians that what you do sacramentally with your communion is real, and it's holy. Let me tell you how important that holiness is. Now we go to chapter 11, okay? Well, let's don't skip over these words because they're so beautiful. Uh, Because, verse 17, because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, 
for we all partake of the one bread. Okay, so there's only one cup and one bread. There's only one God, one Christ, and one body of Christ. And when we partake of it, we are one with him and with one another. Now, this should inform you to stop and think about when you take communion in a sacred, corporate, worshipful setting, you are reenacting the very night in which Jesus was betrayed and receiving as if you were there at the table with Jesus, what the apostles received. Because he commanded it as a, as a perpetual, as often as you'll do this, do this in remembrance of me. So let's jump forward here to chapter 11. Um, he's going to have some more words to say about this. Find Okay. Verse 17. That's interesting. I started reading at 17 and 10, and seven, or I left off there. So, okay. Verse 17, chapter 11. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Okay, he's been giving them some good things to commend them if we read the whole chapter, but he's also got some problems with what they're doing. And he says, what I'm about to tell you, I'm not commending you. Because when you come together, meaning come together for worship, come together to worship and celebrate the Sunday, the Lord's Day, and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And you know what? He says, I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So some are, some are not, they're not all bad. Some are genuine. Verse 20, really important. When you come together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. and One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Exclamation point. <laughs> do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Paul is really tearing them apart here because when they get together to celebrate the Lord's Supper and to worship God, they're not even caring about everyone. Some of them are eating and drinking a whole bunch, getting drunk even, and others aren't getting any. And it's just like one, you know, as the old proverb says, they wait on each other like one pig waits on another, you know? This is not holy. This is not dignified. This is not just. This is not worship. So verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. Okay, now, get that point. What he's about to say, he got from Jesus. Okay, and then he delivered it to them. He, You know, when they started the church in Corinth and he set up leaders there and... and ordained pastors and the like or whatnot. You're, here's how you'll worship and here's the traditions we taught you. He did this over and over everywhere they started churches. Okay, And he said, what I delivered to you, I, I received from Jesus. When did Paul ever receive from Jesus? He didn't even meet Jesus. He wasn't even at the Last Supper that night when Jesus was betrayed, was he? Now he's an apostle late, later added in. But when did he receive from Jesus? Remember on the road to Damascus? He saw Jesus. He met Jesus. And then after on the road to Damascus and he was baptized, then later after this, you know, his eyes, he was blinded. And then he went to the house of Ananias and he was baptized and he received faith. And, and, and then it says he studied in Arabia. The scriptures tell us he went to Arabia and spent years studying, you know, 
Jesus had a, I mean, and this is the guy that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, or three-fourths, or however you count it. Jesus had a lot to say to Paul. He'd heard from Jesus a lot. And so he says, That which I, I received from the Lord, I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, that's the night we just read about in John chapter 13, on the night which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup. And after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You're making Calvary a real proclamation every time you do it. There's something to be gained here. Okay, this is grace-filled. This is real. Verse 27, very, very important, verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Could he get more clear? Could he get more clear? When Jesus, when Judas took that, get tongue-tied here. When Judas took that bread, which had been blessed by Jesus, which was given to him in friendship, which was meant to win him back, but Jesus knew he wouldn't. He, of his own free volition, took that morsel and profaned the body blood of Jesus Christ, his Lord, his Savior, his Creator, and Satan entered into him. Whew. He took the holiest of things and profaned it. What does profane mean? Slander. To slander it, to treat it unholy, to treat it unjustly, to treat it ugly, to treat it evil. So, Paul's not through. Let's keep reading. So, verse 28. Let the person, let a person examine himself, then so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. Okay. What does it mean to discern? What does that mean? to see that it's there, to realize that it's there, to understand that it's there, without discerning the body. If anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Amen. Let us draw near with faith and trembling to work out our salvation. How holy is the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? How holy is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? Is this just some willy-nilly communion? Hey, guess what? We eat bread and we drink juice or wine because we're, Jesus had to do it. Is this just, oh, it, it's, not, it's just a remembrance. No, it's not just a remembrance. This is what theologians have argued over this for years. And I know the Church of the Nazarene doesn't take a 
firm position on, we don't try to get doctrinal like the Catholics do and talk about transubstantiation. When the priest says the exact word, it changes from this to that. We don't do that. But we follow in the theology of our founding father, John Wesley, who followed in the theology of his church, the Church of England, which followed in the theology of the ancient church, that this is real. Can't explain it. Don't know how. Don't really need to try and explain it. But let's approach the table of the Lord with fear and trembling. But understand that they are the gifts of God for the people of God. And Jesus begs us. He invites us. Enter in as often as you do this. Remember me. And even that word remember if we go back into the Greek, anamnesis, and I probably say it wrong, anamnesis. Anamnesis is the Greek word here, and it literally means to participate in a memory, not to just think about. Okay? So we're not called to just think about Jesus' death. When we receive the Holy Supper, we're called to participate in it, and that it is cleansing to our lives that it is nourishment to our souls. Or, if we participate wrongly, what does Paul say? It's judgment upon our lives. Okay, It's judgment if we're wrong. Now, I realize some of this that I'm teaching you might sound new to you. Maybe you've never heard it before. If you've been around me very long, you've heard it before. But i got to tell you, uh, when I learned this, when I really got into Scripture and began to learn this, it, it just... It chills me to the bone to hold the bread and the cup and to receive and to realize what price was paid for me and what he wants to do in me as I receive it. And so therefore I must pray. And I'm sad. I'm sad that we don't do a better job than we do in our own worship services to take you through a more introspective uh, mind discovery process. But you know, when we, when we receive the Lord's Supper the first Sunday of every month, on Saturday night before, why don't you invite yourself into an examination of your conscience and come to the table the next day new and fresh and ready to receive. Don't just do it willy-nilly. Don't just do it because it's real. It's, real. it's nourishment for our lives. And I got to tell you, that's why some people, some churches receive it every week, some every day. John Wesley himself said, the Lord's Supper is such a nourishment to my soul that I, I need it daily. He received it four or five times a week, always taking a day or two off for a contemplation and examination of his conscience. Amazing. This, this is spiritual discipline. This is, this is the life of God that we're called to enter into. And I, I bring you to that passage in Corinthians because I want to take you back to the table with Judas and show you that he took something that was so holy and he profaned it by his own free will. And when we do that, boy, there, there, is, a, there is a line. Don't flirt with temptation because there is a day where we just may go whole hog over the edge and Satan may enter in. He'll never, Satan can never enter in against our will. Okay, let's be clear about something. I don't preach or teach that Satan can come and overtake us or dominate us against our will. Okay, that's, 
demonic possession is real in the world, but it can't be against a person's will. Okay. So, what is it? Eight after the hour? Wow. Sorry, I'm going long here. I started late though too, didn't I? I, I just want you to get this though. Okay. That, that this is so important. This is why John told the story of the foot washing. This is why John, the, the, the humility, and, and he brings us to this place. And this is why he tells us about Judas in this type of way. Uh, this is, he, his first audience understood the seating around the table, and they understood all this. We, we have to really study it because it's not our culture. But when we do, wow, how real it becomes to us, and we understand. But don't, I, I want to I read you a closing passage here. I'm sorry to go long, but I want to give you a thought here. This is uh, from William Barclay's commentary, too. It's just really good, so I have to read it to you here. It's on page 171. When When Judas received the morsel, the devil entered into him. It is a terrible thing that that which was meant to be love's last appeal became hate's dynamic. Jesus handed that bread to him in his last appeal of love. Don't do it. What you're about to do, do quickly. Judas could have said, no, I'm not going to do it. So, Barclay says, it is a terrible thing that that which was meant to be love's last appeal became hate's dynamic. That is what the devil can do. He can take the loveliest things and warp and twist them until they become the agents of hell. (laughs) It's deep stuff. He can take love and turn it into lust. He can take holiness and turn it into pride. He can take discipline and turn it into sadistic Cruelty. He can take affection and turn it into the spineless complacence. We must be on the watch that in our lives the devil never warps the lovely things until he can use them for his own purpose. So Judas went out and it was night. John has a way of using words in the most pregnant way. It was night, for the day was late. But there was another night there. It is always night when a man goes out from Christ to follow his own purpose. It is always night when a man listens to the call of evil rather than the summons of good. It is always night when hate puts out the light of love. It is always night when a man turns his back on Jesus Christ. If we submit ourselves to Christ, we walk in the light. If we turn our backs on him, we go out into the dark. The way of light and the way of dark are set before us. God give us wisdom to choose aright. For in the dark, a man always goes lost. It's powerful stuff. A little dramatic here this morning. But I want to make a point. Holy things are for the holy. Okay? Holy things are for the holy. When you come to the table of the Lord, when you and, and when you come to Christ, always know that you are coming to that which is most holy. When you come to the study of his word, why? 
I, I feel convicted that we should treat his word with holiness. You know, we get so casual in our world. I would say the bane of our culture, of our existence in this modern American life is that we have become so casual at everything. And I mean everything. We just There's just almost nothing left in our culture that we treat with honor and dignity and respect from the way we dress to the way we act to the way we decorate to the way, I don't know, I just... I'll be on a soapbox. It's 12, 13. I got to quit. Sorry. Well, so we come to a somber moment. It is night. But where Christ is, there is always light. Okay? John, this same writer in 1 John says, 1 John 5, in him, he is the light of the world, and in him there is no darkness. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for a love that as that beautiful old hymn says, will not let me go. A love that always reaches, even as you did to Judas, to the very last. Help us to see that same love reaching out to us in the daily things of life. Your word calling to us, even as we study here this morning. Speak to our hearts. Come into our lives. Lead us to walk in the light. To shun the way of the dark. Father, watch over anything that I've said. Let it not lead anyone astray, but lead us in the way everlasting. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever and unto ages and ages. All God's children said, Amen. Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.